So I grew up in a Christian family, Christian home with all the Christian trappings. But my faith for the better part of my early life was pretty nominal. That is, I, I uh, believed in Jesus. I had uh, some understanding of what God and Christ had done for us and the sending of Jesus to, to live and to die and to be raised again. However, I had not pledged my life to Jesus. I did not believe in the way or with the intentionality that biblical faith requires. But that changed when I reached high school. That is a time in my life when I, when I came to faith, when I began to pledge my life to Jesus, though I hasten to add imperfectly. For even then, coming to faith was still very much a process for me. In college then, my faith deepened considerably, and along with that de deepening came an intensity that, that may have been necessary for a season, but in the end didn't serve me very well. In the spiritual life, as in the physical life, I suppose some structure or box is necessary for the beginning phases, but eventually God calls us to kind of step out of that box, because uh, God is uh, way bigger than any box we could ever build to contain him. And my box was a very legalistic box. I saw things as very much black and white with little room for compromise or grace, frankly. Once upon a time, I even burned a couple of books and broke a few vinyl LPs. Contemporary Christian music played an important role in my life as a Christian. I listened to it constantly. And when, when I listen to a lot of that same music today, however, most of it, it seems very sentimental and shallow, to be honest. The late Keith Green was one of the artists I paid a lot of attention to when I was in college. He was intense and he was gifted. And his songs and his ministry called upon Christians to live a no-compromise kind of life, to borrow a title from one of his popular albums. And to be sure, his passion and his music were important to my growth for a season. And I'm thankful for him and I'm thankful for his music. That said... Some of his style was a bit more aggressive, a bit legalistic, a bit too much. You're either in or you're out or get off the fence. There didn't seem to be much room there for questions or doubt or process. And some of his more direct, and I think it's fair to say condescending lyrics that I can still hear ringing in my head all these years later, he's saying this. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you, you can't even get out of bed. Or uh, I think of another place where Keith Green sang, as if his words were coming to us from God, if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming at all. And to be fair, when my friends and I sang along with Keith Green on some of those songs, we sang it all in a very angry condescending and judgmental way as well. We saw ourselves as sold out for Jesus. We saw ourselves as radical. We weren't. But that's how we saw ourselves. And to be fair to Keith Green, I've actually linked in your Bible app live event uh, a song of his that is beautiful. It's a beautiful prayer that I still find meaningful today, and I encourage you to listen to it. Not all of his songs were like that. In college, a couple of my friends, you know, this is where you cannot say I never gave you anything. A couple of my friends and I took a picture of ourselves as if we were in a punk rock Christian band. We were called the Holy Roller Get Saved or Burn in Hell Band. Here's a, here's a picture of our fake album cover. The title of the album was, We've Had It Up to Here. So yes, angry and graceless would-be radicals who weren't as good at following Jesus as we thought we were. But that was the water we swam in. 
And to be sure, there is a place for challenge and, and judgment and calls to get off the fence and contrasting images, asleep or awake, dead or alive, every day or not at all. And even the Gospel of John can be that way. All the Gospels can be that way at times. Throughout John's Gospel so far, we've encountered several contrasting images. Light and dark, life and death, belief and doubt. And I don't want to diminish or take anything away from that imagery at all. Even James, who we believe was the brother of Jesus, later put it this way in James 1. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I find it interesting that James wrote this. And actually, in our, uh, before our reading, we find out when the, when the brothers of Jesus were trying to get him to go up to Jerusalem, which we'll talk about in a minute, they didn't believe in him. James, once upon a time, was double-minded. There is a point when we do need to get off the fence, when we do need to stop being double-minded. There is a, a time when a commitment to follow Jesus is necessary, but there is also a time for something else. There is also a time for something else. Since last week's passage in John 6, right near the end, we find out that many of those who would consider themselves followers of Jesus, that they have turned back because they can't handle this, this teaching of Jesus, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, a, a call to a very radical kind of commitment that in their minds apparently they had just decided we didn't sign up for this. And so they turn away. In chapter 7, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for the feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, even though eventually, initially, he says, I'm not going. He tells his brothers, I'm not going. Eventually, however, he, he either changes his mind or he always intended to wait until the festival is well underway to head up to Jerusalem. And when he goes, he's not, he's not immediately taking his brother's advice. They told him, you should go there and make a show of it and let everybody know who you are and what you're about. But Jesus goes in secret. And John tells us that while Jesus is apparently sneaking around in secret, religious leaders are looking for him. People are talking about him. Some think he's a good man. Others think he's deceiving people. And it's not lost on me, and we heard that phrase too, that people were divided. You'll see it several times here. It's not lost on me that people are divided about Jesus today. Some of us, hopefully us, believe him to be the son of God, the true God of true God. Crucified, risen, and exalted over all of creation. Others may demonize him or ignore him or wrap him in the flag of nationalism. And Jesus serves no flag or nationality. Jesus is Lord. Still others, as I said, are on the fence. Halfway through the festival, Jesus makes himself known. He goes into the temple. He begins to teach on his authority to say and do the things he says and does. The tension in Jerusalem keeps building. The division about who Jesus is continues to bubble up. And at one point, some people even try to seize him, but no one is able to lay a hand on him because John says his hour had not yet come. Furthermore, in chapter 7, verse 31, just a few verses before our passage this morning, the chief priests and the Pharisees send the temple, cards, the temple guards to go and arrest Jesus. So as I said, this festival is the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, during which the people of God celebrated God's provision, God's care, God's shelter in their time of traveling through the wilderness. The last and greatest day of the festival commemorated God's provision of water through the rock that Moses struck with his staff. 
And each day of the feast, there were seven official days, each day of the feast, the priest would march down to the pool of Siloam. You'll hear about that in next week's passage from John 9. They would march down to the pool of Siloam. They would draw out some water. They would march back. They would process around the altar. And while they did so, a choir would chant from Psalms 113 to 118. And then they would pour the water out on the altar as a sacrifice. And this procession and all the partying that would take place during the night as well was all characterized by great joy. On the seventh day of the festival, the priests did all of that, only this time they didn't just march around the altar once, they marched around it seven times. So you can imagine the scene. This has been going on all week. People are chanting and shouting for joy. And with each processional around the altar, it just gets louder and louder as anticipation builds. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, he had to. It was too noisy. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. One of the hopes that's tied into this festival is that God would send life-giving water in the form of rain after a long, dry season as God had provided water for the Israelites in the wilderness. It is in this context that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as living water. Living water is not a theological term. It becomes one, but living water is moving water. It's a stream or a river or a spring bubbling up. It's not a lake or a pond. That's what ancient people would have understood to be living water. It's alive. This is the image of the spirit that Jesus offers to all those who are gathered for the festival. Now, there are actually some questions about how best to translate Jesus' words here. Some, some scholars think that what Jesus is saying is that if we believe in him, streams of living water, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will flow out of him. Out of him, Jesus, and then into those of us who believe in Jesus. So the common English Bible translation of this passage has Jesus saying it this way. All who are thirsty should come to me. All who believe in me should drink. As the scriptures said concerning me, me, rivers of living water will flow out from within him, Christ. The living waters of God's spirit well up, first of all, from within Christ. And when we believe in him, when we give ourselves to Christ, when we surrender all that we are, then the living water flows out from Christ and into each of us. And we receive life and salvation and joy. So Jesus makes this incredible promise. He draws on the imagery that is right before them, the prayer for water and the celebration of the provision of God's water in the wilderness. And he tells them that God is about to do it all again, only this time in a more powerful and lasting way. In the same way that he promised living water, if you remember, to the Samaritan woman by the well back in John chapter 4. Jesus' words at the festival have an impact. In John 7 verse 40 we read, On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. So here again, we get people looking at this and hearing it and hearing or seeing that Jesus might be the prophet like Moses that we talked about last week. And in fact, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, only more so. Some are a little closer to getting it. They think Jesus may indeed be the Messiah. 
Still others are not yet convinced. The people are divided because of Jesus. They're in or out. They're in faith or doubt. They're in light or darkness. There appears to be no middle ground yet. Love what happens next. Remember back in verse 32, chief priests, the Pharisees, sent the temple guards to go and uh, arrest Jesus. A little further down in chapter 7, they return empty-handed. Verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. Temple guards failed, not because they were afraid of the people, not because Jesus slipped out from under them when we were trying to grab him, but because they were beginning to doubt things. They were beginning to think there's more to this Jesus. They're questioning the orders. Something about Jesus and his words has caused them to doubt their assumptions, to wonder if there's maybe more to Jesus than meets the eye, more to Jesus than the Pharisees are willing to admit. But the Pharisees are not pleased. 47. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. I want you to take note. The Pharisees, who have a rather high opinion of themselves, ask condescendingly, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, We don't believe in him, and we're far better prepared and educated to know these things. So if we don't believe him, what business do you have believing in him? You don't know anything of the law of Moses. Then something really cool happens. There is, in fact, a Pharisee in their midst who would sympathize with the temple guards. And this Pharisee is a character from earlier in the story. He makes an appearance. At the end of the second season of the Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, a special character, makes an appearance. And for Star Wars fans, it is delightful. It is wonderful. I told Megan and Sam they needed to binge watch the second season because I was going to spoil something. So if you haven't finished the second season, close your ears. It's Luke Skywalker! And we are... Star Wars fans, thrilled, delighted that he has made a return. It's an awesome and joyful moment. Well, here we have a return of a character from earlier episodes in the Gospel of John, not quite as beloved as the one from The Mandalorian, of course. Nicodemus returns. And while he may not, we may not be as excited to see him as we are to see certain fictional heroes in, in, in fictional universes, it's rather good to see him. Wow. Nicodemus, where have you been? We were worried about you back in chapter 3. How's it going? Have you moved any further along? In the Gospel of John, if that, if that Gospel were turned into a streaming series on Disney+, Plus, we'd get a quick recap during this episode of relevant information from earlier episodes to help us understand what's going on. We would better understand who Nicodemus is and why he's returned to this episode. That recap would take us back to John chapter 3 where we are told that Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night under cover of darkness, probably so no one would see him talking to him. And there the two of them get into a conversation about what it means to enter the kingdom of God and about what the term born again means. But there Nicodemus isn't ready or doesn't fully understand what Jesus is asking so he disappears from the scene and his fate is unknown. 
So back in John 7, right after the Pharisees make their condescending statement about no Pharisees are falling for Jesus, John writes, verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So Nicodemus never mentions Jesus by name. He never says anything outright. But it seems to me that what Jesus said to him back in chapter 3 is still there, still working on him, and perhaps he's grown a bit. But he's not there yet. In the in or out mentality of my more legalistic days, and even within the repeated contrasting images in John's gospel, Nicodemus is out. He is still in darkness and unbelief and doubt. And, and, and if you're not with us, you're against us. But really, we might just say he's still on the fence, right? He's still in process. He hasn't, he hasn't decided yet one way or the other. He's still in the way. Is that bad? No. I heard Tim Keller on a podcast the other day referencing something the late, great John R.W. Stott once said. And he said that in the New Testament, everyone who encounters Jesus either loves him or hates him. And far be it for me to quibble with John Stott, but I would add the phrase, everyone except Nicodemus. Everyone except Nicodemus. People hate Jesus or they are inextricably drawn to Jesus, but Nicodemus, he's in between. He's on a journey. To quote J.R.R. Tolkien in The Fellowship of the Ring, not all those who wander are lost. Not all those who wander are lost. Nicodemus is stumbling along in the right direction. His path may take some twists and turns, but he's, he's on the way. He's the original seeker. He's the patron saint of all who doubt or wander or struggle with whether or not they're ready to commit to the way of Jesus. And that, friends, is a saint for our time. That, friends, is a saint for all who wander today. There is room in the kingdom for people such as this. There is room in God's kingdom for you. Nicodemus' story is a safe place for all who stumble along the way, for all who have questions. And my prayer is that ECC will become that kind of safe place. So if you're with us in the room, if you're worshiping with us online, and you're not, you're not quite sure what to do with Jesus, you're curious about Jesus, but you're not really ready to commit to the way of Jesus, you are welcome here. There is room for you and your journey here at ECC. In the language of our ECC Touchstone of Transformation, Nicodemus is on the journey from curiosity to Christiformity, from being conformed to the world to being transformed by the renewing of his mind. And his story in the pages of John's Gospel is still being told. And there is grace for that and for all who are in that place today. If Nicodemus' story resonates with any of you, we want you to know that Jesus loves, loves it when we seek the truth even if we stumble a little bit along the way, even if we wander a bit. There are many who wandered in the pages of our Bibles, but perhaps the, the best illustration is the people of Israel themselves. 
When they were led out of slavery in Egypt, they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Why? Because like Nicodemus, they weren't quite ready to fully commit to the way of life to which God was calling them. They were wandering. And eventually God met them. Over and over God showed his mercy to them, finally leading them into the promised land. Not only that, but just as God promised long ago, he sent them a Messiah. The one who is now offering them and us the living water of the Holy Spirit. I know someone who does not identify as a Christian any longer. In my opinion, he is wandering. He is trying to find the truth. So when I asked him about what he now considered himself to be, his answer was intentionally provocative and honest. He said he was a humanist agnostic Christian. A humanist agnostic Christian. By that he meant that he is deeply concerned with the needs of human beings and with care for the planet, that he is strongly reliant on scientific evidence, that he is not sure about God and whether God is actually represented by the orthodox view from Christianity, but he is comfortable with mystery and with not knowing. But even so, he is fascinated by the teaching and the way of life of Jesus and in fact would consider Jesus a model for living. Where is this young man on the journey? Would Jesus look at him as merely in the dark, on the outside, far from faith? Or would he see him as someone who is like Nicodemus, someone on a journey, someone who's wandering a bit on the way, trying to figure it out? Who might you know who is wandering and not yet ready to surrender their lives to Christ? Someone who is not yet sure that Jesus is worth surrendering to even. It, it may be a family member, a good friend, a neighbor, a coworker. It may be you. How can we pray for these people in a way that honors where they are in life and on the journey and honors the God who loves them unconditionally? Finally, in what ways are you and I like Nicodemus? Are there areas of our lives where we too are wandering? Are there places of doubt in our hearts? Are there fears of letting go? Are there questions we are afraid to ask? Fear not, for not all those who wander are lost, even you. For the Israelites in the Exodus and in the exile, for the temple guards who can't bring themselves to arrest Jesus because of the things he's saying, for all those in John chapter 7 who are divided over just who Jesus is. For Nicodemus who still isn't quite ready to commit. And for all who stumble along in the general direction of Jesus today. The spirit of God awaits. Ready to be poured out upon and within us like living water. And the invitation is still open for all who are thirsty. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for our friend Nicodemus. His story is still being told. Perhaps ours are being told as well. Maybe we're in the middle. Maybe we're in process. Maybe we know and love someone who is in process. Lord, help us to love them like you love them. 
Help us to continue to pray for those wanderers in our lives, those who are still trying to find their way. Help us to surrender the parts of our lives where we are wandering, where we have doubts, where we have questions, where we're not everywhere we wish we were or think we should be. And help us to know in the midst of all of that, God, that you love us, that you are with us, that you know how thirsty we are and that you have what we need. God, I pray that you would pour out your spirit on each of us now, wherever we are on that journey, whether we are in the room or online, pour out your spirit, draw us to yourself, draw us further along in the journey, make us aware of your presence here this day, make us aware of loved ones in our lives or our neighbors or our co-workers who are on the journey, help us to be mindful to pray for them. Help us, Lord God, to get to that point eventually where we surrender all that we are and we give ourselves completely to you. Quench our thirst, Lord God. We thank you for hearing us in Jesus' name.